This is sort of part two of the mini-series that I began last week. We uh, talked last week about the gospel of the other side. I hope you preached the gospel of the other side to yourself this past week and reminded yourself where you are headed and who is taking you there and how you're going to get there. And uh, this week I want to focus on, if you would, some of the low points in that uh, journey to the other side through our our trials, our, our tests, and our, our temptations. And uh, some of the most striking verses to me in all of Scripture are Hebrews 5, 7, and 8. You look at those verses and, and you find out that the author of Hebrews is speaking about our Lord Jesus. And in verse 8 it says, the, even though he was a son he learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus had to learn obedience? He had to learn something in life through what he suffered. And if Jesus, the God-man, had to learn something in life, and he had to learn it through suffering, what is it that we need to learn? Me and you, as we go through life, and do we have to learn it the same way Jesus did? I'd like to explore that question this morning. And I want to explore it by using an account in the life of the Apostle Paul and his friend and fellow worker, Timothy, an account that Paul gives to us in the Second Corinthians Chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Now, before I read, I'm going to ask you a question. And I want you to think about this question, but not answer it right away. Sort of save it, let it percolate. And the question is this. What was Jesus' last act of humiliation as our Redeemer. What was Jesus' last act of humiliation as our Redeemer? Don't answer it. Just think about it. Now, if you would, I want you to give attention to the Word of God as I read it for you and as He, by His Spirit, through His living and active Word, speaks to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. 
We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such deadly peril, and He will deliver us again. On Him we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us as, your, as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the God of compassion, the Father of all of our comforts. And you know our needs this morning, every one of us as we sit here. We need you, by your Spirit, to minister to us through your Word that our lives might be changed, that we might receive that divine comfort, that we might be those who know endurance, that we might be those who would be brave together. We would ask and we would pray that you do this kind of thing in our midst this day. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. How are you doing this morning? Good. Isn't not that you're right on, that standard. We have a standard response to how you're doing, and that standard response, well, I'm doing good. I'm doing okay. Uh, I'm doing better than I deserve. Those are the kind of standard responses we give, and generally, the people around us are uninformed of the sentences we feel in our lives or in, in our hearts. Now, being of the generation that I'm from, I'm really pretty good at that. I can put a, a veneer over most anything. But you might ask me, how are you doing today? <laughs> well, okay, sort of. But uh, I just came out of a, a really uh, long period uh maybe six months or so, surrounding the uh, decline and death and burial of my mother in, in the aftermath. She died in, in late March, and it was uh, just yesterday that we uh, finished cleaning out uh, the storage locker with all the things that were in it. Now, I'm knowing that many of you find yourself in a similar place. Circumstances are different, but there are similar places that you find yourself. Times of trial, times of testing, and times of temptation. Now, the exact cause of yours is different than mine. And what's interesting is in the passage we have before us this morning, it's really sort of hard, if not impossible, to pin down the exact cause of what was happening with Paul and with Timothy. And later in the passage, it sort of indicates that they're going through a succession of things. It says God has delivered us, God will deliver us, He'll continue to do this kind of thing. He almost casts a picture out that for us, life is sort of like in one of three phases. Either we're in a time of testing or trial or temptation, or we've just come out of one of those times, 
or there's one of those times ahead of us. And in the midst of this, there's the need of the continual deliverance of God. Now, while we can't pin it down, I just would sort of like to give you some dimensions of this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about the things that had happened. And this is in the same book, okay? And look what he says about the things that had happened to him. You know, 40 lashes minus one, three times beaten with rods, once pelted with stones, three times shipwrecked. Any volunteers to follow in the Apostle Paul's footsteps? You know, I want to be just like the Apostle in the first century church. Be careful. That list of things up there would probably scare most of us off. Scare me off. So when the Apostle Paul talks about feeling the sentence of death, he's telling us the truth. He's telling us exactly how he and Timothy felt. We're as good as dead. We don't feel like going on. And so, when we look at that and when we consider that, what is it that we should be learning about our life in Christ? What should I be learning about my life in Christ? What should you be learning about it? As Jesus, if you would, was learning about it. As Paul tells us this morning, that he was learning about it. And when we look at these times of testing and trial and temptation, where do we go to find hope? Where do we begin to look? And that's the headline of this passage. In all of these things, true comfort comes from God our Father. Verse 3. He is the God of compassion. And that word means He comes alongside. He feels your pain. He knows how you're feeling. And therefore, He is the God of all comfort. All comfort. Now this is where we need to be careful. Because in the place where we live, we are comfort addicts. If the air conditioners were not working this morning, you would be out of here. Hey, are we glad that these are padded pews and not those hard old wooden pews? Oh, comfort is enough legroom on the airplane. And comfort is having a really good strong signal on your cell phone and enough money in the bank. You see, where we are culturally is we want to be comfortable in our comfort. But that's not what this passage is telling us about. This passage is talking about something completely different. It's comfort while being discomforted, if you would, by troubles, by difficulties, by trials, and by temptations. And the word Paul uses here is the same word that he uses, that Jesus uses in his discussion with the disciples in the upper room in John 14 through 16, where he identifies the one he will send to come alongside, the comforter, the counselor, the same word of one who call is called alongside is here. Somebody who comes and helps you carry the burden and, if you would, walks beside you. And that's the description that he is putting forth in this passage. And in the Latin, the word that is used to translate this and 
And at the same time, we get our word comfort is the word confortus, which literally means somebody to come alongside so you can be brave together. Brave together in the midst of difficult times, in the midst of things that scare you, in the midst of things that shake your faith. Let me see if I can, by way of illustration, sort of add some color to this for you. Uh, after I got out of the military and went to work, uh, of course I worked in the military, uh, but in those early days I, I had a nickel and I was looking for another nickel so I'd have two nickels to rub together. But I was talking to my wife and about going camping on vacations. And she said, uh, you know, in the military, I spent a lot of time on the ground camping. And uh, she said, uh, two rules. One, I don't sleep on the ground. And two, you cook. What a negotiator. Hey. And uh, so I, I looked around and I found this camper that Coleman was liquidating. And it was nothing more than plywood and canvas. And it opened up and it looked like it was a bicentennial type of thing. And it had red, white, and blue canvas. It looked like something you'd sell snow cones out of at the state fair. And there was nothing there except plywood on the floor. It was frail, but it's all we could afford. And so we took it and went off with our two young daughters. And we were in upstate New York at uh, the Finger Lakes. And uh, one afternoon, uh, we'd had a good time, and we went to the uh, the shower house, and the, the kids took showers and stuff. And the younger daughter uh, was finished first, and so I came uh, back to the camper with her, and uh, Gail and her older daughter stayed at the shower house. But at the same time as that's happening, there's this huge thunderstorm gathering. The sky is just black. Remember that one we had Friday night? Were you all here for that one? It was sort of like that, maybe a notch or two higher. And so I said, we better get back to the camper. And so we get back to the camper, and I put our younger daughter inside because the tents around us are starting to blow away. The stakes aren't holding it down. And this camper is really not very substantial. I you get in here, I gotta put things down and put them under the camper so they don't blow away. And while this is happening, all you know what breaks loose. Lightning, thunder, rain pelting it. This little camper going womp, 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 womp. And she's inside, and guess what? She's terrified. And I'm outside, and guess what? I'm terrified. And she's saying, Daddy, Daddy, help me, help me. And of course, I'm outside making sure that the camper doesn't leave with her in it, doing the best I can. And how can I, how can I help her? How can I come alongside of her? And so I, I put my hand on the side of the tent. I said, here, here, Susie, here's my hand. Put your hand on my hand. Feel my hand. We're going to be okay. We can be brave together, even though you can't see me. You see, that's what's going on here. God is wanting to come alongside. God does come alongside so that in our difficulties we can have comfort. He is the one who comforts us in all of our troubles. 
All of them. That's what this says in all of our troubles. And then the apostle tells us as we have experienced that kind of thing, we can be comforters of each other. We can come alongside each other. You see, there's twofold comfort here. There's the presence and the reality of the Holy Spirit coming alongside of us, the third person of the Trinity. And then there's one another. We come alongside of each other with the Spirit within us to comfort each other so that we can be brave together. Now make no mistake about it. Jesus and His Father were brave together at the cross. In one moment, Jesus could cry out, My my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But at the same time, He knew He would not be abandoned to the grave, nor would God let His Holy One see corruption. There's this whole thing going on that He's in the midst of a terrible time. And He had to be brave. He prayed the night before. If He wasn't terrified at the cross, then Gethsemane doesn't mean anything. It's sort of like a... A joke. But he was. And he needed to be brave the next day. And who would he be brave with? His disciples had deserted him. He was brave together with his Father. Now even though when difficult things come to your life, you may say, well, Jesus just doesn't understand how I feel. You may say that to yourself. But because he was went through what he went through, no one was ever treated more unfairly, more harshly, more unjustly than he was. He says to you, I understand. We do not have a high priest who was unable to empathize, but one who was tempted and tried in every way. And he says to us, put your hand out. And touch me through the unseen veil. And let's be brave. Brave together. After he concludes his discussion with the disciples in John 16, he simply says, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, trials, temptations, difficulties. But take heart. I have overcome the world, and I would put my parenthesis there, I have overcome the world and we can be brave together because I have overcome the world. Now, surely, you gather each Lord's Day for worship, for fellowship, and for teaching. But you also need to gather to do the business of your souls with one another. I'm here this morning because Tom and I belong to a pastor's group. Bob was part of that group, the original group. And we were a bunch of senior pastors that got together from different denominations so we could be brave together. We didn't get together to brag about what Jesus was doing in my church. But to say, hey, Let's talk about what we need to do to be brave together. Listen to what Paul says about this whole thing of being pastors in this book, 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 16, 
chapter 2, verse 16, he literally says, sort of like an exasperation, and who is equal to this task? And then later in the book, in chapter 11, he says, besides everything, daily the pressure of my concern for the churches confronts me. And he begins his book by saying, we felt the, the sentence of death. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. He says, who can bear the weight of souls without sometimes sinking to the dust? Let no man who looks for ease of mind and a quiet life enter the ministry. If he does, he will flee from it in disgust. How's that for a resident? Hey, would you like to sign up for this career? And you see, we gather because we're frail men. We gather because of our weaknesses, physical, mental, and spiritual, and we talk to each other about what we need so that we can be brave together, so we can come alongside each other in prayer, so we can come along each other, beside each other with the comfort with which we've been comforted, so that we can be brave together. And you need to learn how to do the same thing when you come together. It doesn't mean everybody needs to know everything about your life. But it does mean that in your walk with Christ, first of all, you need to tell Him how you feel. You need to tell Christ what you're feeling. He already knows. But you see, the the problem is when you tell Him, you're informing yourself. Are you mad at God? No, I'm just disappointed. Come on. Are, Are you mad at God because you are where you are? I don't deserve to be, you know, He He knows it. The problem is you don't know it. And as you talk about those things, and as you share with one another, they say, I have been there too. And you'll find out that you're not alone. A lot of times Christians think, oh, this this experience is unique to me. And the answer is, no, it is not unique to you. It was common to Christ, it was common to the Apostle Paul, to Timothy, and all those that have gone before. And so we need to learn to do that with one another so that in times of trial and trouble and temptation and difficulty, as Christ by His Spirit comes alongside us, as we come alongside one another, we can be brave together. Together is the body of Christ. So in life in Christ, overflowing suffering brings overflowing comfort. That's the point as he talks Harkey in verse 5. In the midst of hardship, what comes? Comfort. You know, you can try to flee from hardship or difficulty or trials and temptation all you want, but they're going to be there. And in the midst of it, what the apostle is telling you and he's telling me this morning, that Christ's comfort will overflow our suffering. It will literally drown it out. Three times in this passage, he says this all has purpose in verses 4 and verses 6 and verses 9. There's divine design to all of it. As Christians, there is no suffering that will be without comfort and there is no suffering that is ultimately tragic. Who handed Jesus over to be crucified? Well, Isaiah tells us it was the Father's will. It was the Father's design. And you see, on the horizontal, 
as we look at the cross, as the disciples looked at the cross. This is the worst thing that could have happened to our movement. There's nothing that could have done more damage to it than this. And that was the horizontal perspective. The vertical perspective was this is, in fact, the epitome of the powerful work of God and redemption right here. And see, that's the perspective that God wants you and me to have about our suffering. That there is divine design in it. There is purpose. There is nothing that is happening without God's ordination. Every hair of your head is numbered, even if there aren't many left. Every bird that falls is noticed by the Father. All of our days were numbered before one of them came to be. There is purpose in our suffering. And when that suffering comes, it produces fruit. Just to name a few, in verses 6 and 7, Paul talks about it makes us comforters. We learn patient endurance. We gain firm hope. We, we have reliance. Who needs those? I do. Anybody out there? Okay. Life ever scare you? Life ever depress you? Life ever disappoints you? Life ever make you sad? Yeah. There's a place where it actually feels like God's piling on. In the book of Job, that's what it seems like. God allows Satan literally to pile on Job. And he is he's feeling broken. He's feeling bad. And he has these three friends that come alongside him and say, you shouldn't feel that way. And the answer is, what? Job saying, yeah, I should feel that way. Well, if you were just a better man, this wouldn't happen to you. What? It's the most righteous man on the earth. There's no connection there between the two. Sometimes there may be, you know, some we do reap what we sow occasionally. But the fact of the matter is, these things happen in life. And in Romans, the apostle says to us, weep with those that weep. Don't tell them you shouldn't feel that way. Enter into their suffering because Christ entered into our misery. Christ entered into our suffering. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. It's something that produces reality and fruit in us. A couple weeks ago, I was at our uh, annual General Assembly. Uh, the Presbyterians get together and hash it out. Uh, and I was talking to an old friend. He's an old friend. He's not that old because he was young when the seminary, because I was old when I was in seminary. But I said, hey, David, how you doing? And then I have a, a thriving, successful ministry. And he asked uh, how our daughters were because he knew them when they were little in seminary. I said, they're great. You know, they're in their 40s now and uh, six grandkids and stuff. And I said, by the way, how, how are you and your family doing? And he paused. Well, I was afraid you'd ask that. Said our two-year-old granddaughter has a terminal genetic illness 
and she's on a feeding tube and there's there's no hope for her. And I said, I can't even imagine, even begin to imagine the pain that brings to your heart, your wife's heart, and your daughter's heart. Not to mention the little tear in my eye. All I can do is, I'll just pray that God will be merciful. He said, yeah, I've preached this comfort for years, and now I have to live it. We have to live it. You have to live it. And I have to live it. But the reality is, in overflowing suffering, it's Christ's comfort that overflows our suffering so that we can be brave together. Now, as we get down to the sort of the conclusion of this, why, why is Paul telling the Corinthians, he said, we don't want you to be ignorant about what's going on with us and what we feel and all this. And he says, and he tells them why it's happening. In all this, it's happening to him and it's happening to us that we might learn to rely on God who raises the dead. Who did Jesus rely on on the cross? He relied on God who raises the dead. He raises us up from our moments of death. That's what regeneration is. That's what, when we're born again, we're raised up, if you would, from our death in trespasses and sin. And there are a thousand resurrections along the way until that ultimate one. You know, our kids grew up in the age of uh, plastic and wooden toys and, uh, and dolls and stuff. And they'd break. Thanks to science, it was the age of superglue. And uh, they would show up on my desk in pieces. And it was simple. It was, Daddy Fix, take this broken thing and make it new with super glue. You see, that's what God's doing with us. Only it's not super glue. It's the supernatural power of the almighty creator God. And he's teaching us as forgiven sinners, yet, I mean, yet those who sin who are inwardly being renewed, but outwardly being decaying and wasting away. He's teaching us that he's making all things new. He's teaching us to rely on him in every circumstance of life. And in doing this, what becomes clear is that suffering destroys self-reliance. These things happen to us so that, parenthesis, we might not rely on ourselves, but rely on God who raises the dead. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, just sitting by and doing nothing, passivity. But I'm talking about self-reliance. I'm a Presbyterian in the tradition of Calvin et al., and I value theology and education and 
being able to parse the fine points of this doctrine and that doctrine. And most of all, we want to be right. That has to be destroyed. In the previous letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, remember, knowledge puffs up, but only love builds up. He wants to remind us of what he told his disciples in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do a little bit. Is that correct? Is that correct? Apart from me, you can do nothing. If this message has any effect on anybody today, it will be God's doing. Not my doing. It will be God who has done it. Because he can only do those kind of things. I can't do those kind of things. I can't touch your heart. I can't change your heart. But abiding in the vine, me and you, many things help happen. And self-reliance is being destroyed. And we are learning to rely on God who raises the dead. And in the midst of this, what we're learning is that comfort comes in the midst of suffering. That's where you meet real comfort. You meet real comfort not on a padded pew, but in a parched desert, in a difficult place. And as the Father raised Christ, He will deliver us. See, that's why we rely on the God who raises the dead. Last week, it was Jesus who stilled the storm, who was sovereign over all the events of the journey. And the, the last trial that we're going to face is death. And we're relying on the God who raises the dead. We're relying on that God all of our life and all the thousands of resurrections between now and that day. We're learning to be brave together so when that last and final journey comes, we can be brave together. What am I learning about Christ? My life in Christ? From trial and temptation to trial and temptation, I'm learning to rely on God who raises the dead. Now, my mother was a Christian. She she was 99 when she died. And she was faithful in her worship, in her work, in her support of Christ in, her, in His church for years. Only near the end, when faculties were fading and weakness was coming, did that outward practice stop. And in, in the nursing home, more than once, she would ask me, what is going to happen to me? That's what every one of us asks ourselves or will ask ourselves as we approach death. What is going to happen to me? And when she would say that, I would encourage her and comfort her and comfort myself 
by talking to her about what God has promised, about what the God who has raised the dead has promised. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. To be apart from the body is to be with Christ. You will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God has given you eternal life, not interrupted life. And on the journey that you will make from this world to the next are not all angels servants appointed to serve those who love God. What will happen to you is when you close your eyes for the last time, you will go to be with You will go to be with the God who raises the dead. What was the last thing Jesus did as our Redeemer? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He trusted with the obedience of faith the God who raises the dead. He didn't say... Here I come. I've got it all done. He said, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And you see, the foundation for that obedience of faith is laid as we learn to be brave together. Because it takes courage to trust God and to obey God in difficult times. He's not going to leave us alone. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Even though you walk through the valley of shadow of death, what? There you are with me. I've been with a lot of people going to the the next life, the departure to be with the Lord. And the one scripture that is requested more than all the other scriptures is Psalm 23. Because in the valley of the shadow of death, you want somebody to be brave together with. In the military, I know uh, of no, nothing that will, at least in the army I was in, there are no one-man outposts, no one-man foxholes. There are always at least two men because it's really hard to be brave together when you're alone. And that's what Christ has done for us. He has not left us alone. He's given us the spirit that comes alongside. He's given us each other to come alongside so that we can be brave together in the obedience of faith in good times, and especially in trials, temptations, and testing, and in that final journey from this world to the next. Let's pray. Father, be merciful to us. Let us learn more and more to trust you, because you are the one who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead, and you are the one 
who will raise us from the dead. You are the great I am, the great Redeemer, Savior, God of your people. We ask and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.